Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and we're pleased to present this program about Murr versus Wisconsin, the most important property rights case before the Supreme Court this term. It involves the issue of how to consider the parcel as a whole, uh, which our panelists uh, will get into. I know you're now salivating at the idea of what exactly this is uh, all about. Uh, and regulatory takings more broadly um, these very uh, uh, meaty issues as they present themselves in a, an unusual sort of situation, although actually it's, it's not all too unusual, unfortunately, uh, as what happens when uh, property owners try to uh, own contiguous pieces of, of, of property and the government starts uh, regulating them in various ways. Uh, I won't be getting into uh, any more of either the facts or the law because we have not only our learned panelists, who I'll be introducing in a moment, uh, but first, for some opening remarks, uh, we have Todd Gaziano, who's the executive director of the Pacific Legal Foundation's DC Center and a PLF senior fellow in constitutional law, uh, who will talk about his clients, and in this case, because after all, PLF is uh, litigating this case on behalf of the Moors. So, Todd. Well, thank you, Ilya and Roger and others uh, from Cato. I want to begin by expressing my special thanks to them and the Cato Institute, um, who does so much to promote our constitutional liberty, uh, not only um, by sponsoring such a scholarly and, um, and, inform and an informative panel today on what I agree is, is not only the most important property rights case of the Supreme Court term, but also one of the most important cases of the term of any type. But in addition to that, of course, uh, Cato's scholarly publications, including its annual Supreme Court review, play a vital role in the uh, debate over constitutional and legal um, reform and, and other developments. And its legal briefs, not only in this case, but in many other cases, um, speak directly to the judiciary uh, and influence the law. So the Cato Institute I think we would agree plays an indispensable role in the debates over our constitutional liberty. Well, let me set the table a little bit on the, the facts of the uh, Murr case. Uh, I am proud, and, and rarely am I actually a part of the litigation team, but I'm a very minor uh, proud member of the litigation team for Pacific Legal Foundation uh, defending the Murrs. My colleague, John Groen, will argue the case on Monday, and he's here today. Uh, PLF has won a enviable nine Supreme Court cases in a row. Uh, we trust John will keep that record and grow that record um, on, uh, w w when the case is released. But the uh, true star of the day um, are our clients, the Murr family members, who have endured, endured, I should say, years of litigation, not only to vindicate their rights, but when they win this case, to vindicate the rights of all Americans. Um, on St. Patrick's Day, we know, I, my wife reminded me to wear a greenish tie, um, but uh, we know we're either all Irish or honorary Irish. I'm of the honorary Irish type. I've, I've uh, pulled the panel there, all of the, at we least. We don't have to kiss you, though, do we? <laughs> uh, well, not, not you, not you, Ilya. But in any event, the, the, the MERS truly are a, a typical um, tight-knit, Irish-American family, and their struggle 
um, legal struggle is over a piece of property that helps keep that family together. Um, representing the party is Donna Murr. Donna, would you stand for just a few seconds? Um, uh, Donna is representing the family here today, but 20 to 21 of her family members will join her on Monday to try to get in the Supreme Court to listen to the argument about their family retreat. And the reason they're all so interested is their, their parents, uh, Dorothy and William Murr, in 1960 were modest means, but they bought an idyllic piece of riverfront property on the St. Croix River, and they built a small cabin. And when Donna was young and her, her many siblings went, went to that cabin, and they, the family valued that piece of property so much that the parents invested in the adjoining lot. And they always intended that as an investment for the family. And um, as is the case with many Irish American families, there are a lot of siblings, right? And those children eventually inherited uh, both the original lot purchased in 1960 and the adjoining lot, which was purchased in 1963. And Donna has told uh, uh, many stories, and I've seen pictures of their gatherings, particularly on Memorial Day, when, when, when dozens of these uh, Murr family members uh, get together. So understandably, they would need to, they wanted to expand the cabin and improve it, because it's more than 60 years old. And so they tried to do what their parents always intended them to do, which is use the investment lot and sell the lot um, so that they could use the proceeds to expand the cabin. And that's when their trouble began. Because that's when they learned that if anyone else owned the vacant lot, they could sell it. And by the way, they could sell it for almost a half a million dollars. But the MERS under a county ordinance that was enacted well many years after their parents bought both pieces of subdivision property prohibit the MERS from selling it for a penny or anything. They can give it away, but they cannot, they cannot sell it. So the MERS did what every family in that circumstance should do. Well, they first sought a variance, but they, after many years of, of court battles, the variance was denied. So then they did what every family ought to do. They brought a takings lawsuit. They brought a takings lawsuit to seek compensation. And their suit, of course, doesn't challenge the county's right to render the, this one acre uh, vacant parcel undevelopable. And as I said, anyone else in that subdivision could sell it. But the wisdom of the county ordinance said that you would be grandfathered if you owned the piece of property and it was your sole property. But if you own an adjoining property, that's held against you. And like the MERS, that lot is not allowed to be developed. So their takings claim, as the, I'll, I'll turn it over to the legal experts, um, argues, of course, that the county can do that. But if the regulation goes too far, then the government has to pay compensation. Um, the very last thing I'm going to uh, mention is that uh, Pacific Legal Foundation is releasing officially today uh, a new uh, liberty brief uh, titled, When Just Compensation is Due for Regulatory Takings of Private Property. It's available out on the uh, registration desk today for those of you here, and it's available on pacificlegal.org website for those who are joining us 
uh, remotely. Uh, we're going to update the Liberty Brief after the win to explain to the American people why we spend so much uh, time and effort representing people like the MERS free of charge um, over these regulatory takings issues. With that, I'll turn it back to Ilya. Thanks, Todd. Um, I'll introduce our speakers, uh, all of them right now, and then let them go uh, and uh, discuss these important issues. Roger Pallon will go first. He is the founding director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies uh, and the founding publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He also holds Cato's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies. Before joining Cato, Roger held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, and was a national fellow at the Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the Constitution, and in 2001, Columbia University School of General Studies awarded him its Alumni Medal of Distinction. After Roger will be Michael Pappas, uh, who is, uh, we're grateful that he's uh, able to step in at relatively short notice to come here. He's an associate professor of law at the University of Maryland's Francis King Carey School of Law. He teaches in the areas of property and environmental law and writes on the nature of property expectations, government responsibilities, and private rights in managing resources such as land, energy, water, wildlife, fisheries, and food. He was voted Outstanding Faculty Member of the Year in 2014. Uh, before law school, uh, before joining the uh, Maryland Law School, he was a Forrester Fellow at Tulane University Law School. Uh, and has also taught at Loyola University in New Orleans and served as an instructor at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Prospect Training Program. Uh, and then he also clerked for uh, Judge James Dennis of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. We actually have four of us, if we include Todd, who clerked for judges uh, on the Fifth Circuit. So uh, I guess we could issue a clerkly uh, uh, advisory uh, uh, a draft opinion uh, of sorts. Uh, finally, we have Ilya Soman, who's a professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He's the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Small Government, Government is Smarter, which has uh, gotten a lot of attention in the last year, uh, as well as The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain. So you see he's uh, eminently qualified to talk about uh, uh, these issues today. Also co-author of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, The Volokh Conspiracy, and The Health Care Case, because in addition to his wide publication in scholarly and popular press, he's also a member of The Volokh Conspiracy, the uh, Washington Post's uh, uh, legal uh, blog that is indispensable reading if you want to understand what's going on in so many different areas of law. So, Roger, let's kick it off. Well, th <clears throat> thank you, uh, Ilya. Um, the um, case itself is going to be discussed in detail by, um, uh, first of all, Michael and then Ilya. Uh, my uh, role here is simply to uh, lay something of a foundation for that with a quick uh, run through uh, some of the regulatory takings jurisprudence that uh, we've enjoyed over the past century or so. And that's what I shall do in about uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, that's a lot to cover in 10 minutes. But uh, we begin, of course, with uh, John Locke and his theory of uh, natural rights uh, to property, which the um, framers and before that the founders took the, with them when they wrote the um, 
Declaration and then the Constitution. The Constitution in the two due process clauses of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, and then the takings clause uh, of the Fifth Amendment sought to protect. And it's the takings clause that is especially relevant here, uh, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, the, uh, what I'll do now is show how this plays out in the regulatory takings area. Um, the eminent domain power, which is implicit in the takings clause, uh, has a branch which plays out in uh, regulatory takings. Uh, they are sort of takings light, if you want to look at it that way. A regulatory taking arises not when the government takes the um, full property, including the fee, but rather takes various uses that otherwise go with the property, leaving the property devalued, often substantially so, and then the question arises whether the owner is entitled to compensation under that regulation. I'm gonna give you four scenarios when this, when, in which this might play out. The first scenario is one in which the government takes an action that devalues the property but doesn't actually take anything. It closes a military base in the community or a school and you lose value in your home or your business as a result. There, you're not entitled to compensation because nothing that belonged free and clear to you was taken. You don't own value in your property per se. The second scenario is where the government regulates you uh, by prohibiting you from doing something that you have no right to do in the first place, nuisance, risk, and the like. There, too, you're not in entitled to compensation. The third scenario is the one that is relevant, whereby the government not preventing you from uh, doing something that you have no right to do, but rather providing the public with various goods, wildlife habitat, lovely views, historic preservation, and the like, uh, and all the costs of providing that fall upon a small number of owners or even a single owner, uh, and then the question arises whether that owner is entitled to compensation. He keeps the property, but it's been devalued often uh, very greatly. The fourth scenario is, of course, full use of eminent domain where the government takes the whole property and there, as long as it's a public use, uh, you're entitled to compensation. So it's that third area that uh, we're focusing on here. And uh, one can say that Madison captured it in his famous essay on property in the 1792 National Gazette when he wrote, as a man is said to have a, a right in his property, so he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. In other words, each of those uh, rights, these uses that go with the property, are themselves property rights. And we understand this in every area of the law except regulatory takings. In fact, the metaphor comes from that uh, of a bundle of sticks. Each one of those sticks is a property. And we will see how that plays out when I get to the last case I'm going to consider, namely Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Commission. Now, uh, it was said that early on in the, in the history of the country, we did not have regulatory takings. But let's remember that early in our history, we didn't have anything like the regulations that we have today. That was a product of the modern uh, progressive era. And that's no surprise when we started to see some regulatory takings cases coming before the court. Not that there weren't some before that, but they tended to be cases uh, like uh, that in uh, the 1871 uh, um, pump 
heavily the Green Bay uh, Company where you had flooding and uh, therefore the, the question arose. These were in physical invasion kinds of cases. But one can say that the first real regulatory cases that came before the court in the modern era was a pair of rent control cases out of Washington and, uh, and New York, um, Block v. Hirsch in 1921. Uh, and they came uh, uh, out of World War uh, I. And this was a case that was decided by the uh, sainted uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great progressive from Cambridge, uh, who said that um, he ruled against the uh, property owners there, uh, saying that there were exigent circumstances. They were just temporary uh, r regulations. Well, we know how temporary re rent control has been in those two cities. Um, the uh, the uh, next case was a year later when, uh, again, it was Justice Holmes, and he went the other way. This was Pennsylvania Coal v. Mahon. And from that, I'm not going to go into the details of the three levels, the surface estate, the support estate, and the, uh, and the mineral estate that were involved in that. But basically, we get the rule from that that if a regulation goes too far, it constitutes a taking. Well, with that, we have had what Scalia said 70 years later was uh, 70 years of ad hoc regulatory takings to try to determine when a regulation goes too far. The, um, uh, th that was in 1922. Then in 1926, we had uh, the case called uh, Euclid v. Ambler uh, Realty, a zoning case. Uh, this was a perfect example of progressive social engineers at their best. They were regulating the, uh, the uh, outskirts of Cleveland uh, in minute detail. Uh, stables with fewer than five horses go here. Sta uh, stables with more than five horses go there. Cemeteries here, churches there, and so forth. I mean, it was really a heyday of uh, progressive uh, uh, social engineering. Um, the problem was that the plaintiffs in that case, as a result of that zoning, lost three-quarters of the value uh, of their property. Uh, nevertheless, they lost. That was a case that was decided by um, uh, Judge Justice uh, Sutherland uh, in a six-to-three ruling. Skip ahead now to 1960 and the Armstrong v. United States case. And there we have another six-three ruling with Justice Black. And he lays out essentially the principle behind the takings clause generally, and more particularly regulatory takings. And he wrote that the takings clause bars government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. So hold on to that thought. There's your theory of the matter right there. Now, we move on to the case that is really before the Murr case, and that's the Penn Central v. New York. Here again, another 6-3 ruling, uh, 1978. Uh, this was a challenge to New York's landmarks preservation law. Um, it took the um, uh, Penn Central's air rights above Grand Central Terminal, and we have from that a three-pronged test 
which reads as follows. The, the con court considers the economic impact of the regulation on the claimant, the extent to which the regulation has interfered with distinct investment-backed uh, expectations, and finally, the character of the governmental action. And as uh, Steve uh, Eagle from uh, George Mason, from the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason has said, there's also a fourth, uh, namely the parcel as a whole. In other words, you apply these principles to the parcel as a whole. Now, if you know what any of those four points stand for, you're doing far better than Justice Brennan ever did or the court has done <laughs> since then. In any event, we then had the uh, series of ad hoc regulatory takings thereafter. The Loretto decision of 1982, again a 6-3 decision in which Marshall uh, said um, this, that uh, if there is a permanent physical presence, uh, then uh, you, uh, and one of those sticks is the right to exclude, then you have a regulatory taking. Um, with First English in 1970, uh, uh, 1987, you had again a 6-3 ruling. This was Rehnquist writing for the court, saying that you're entitled to compensation <laughs> if it's a temporary uh, taking. Uh, the Nolan and Dolan cases in 1987 and 1994, respectively, were cases in which you had um, the, the nexus requirement. In other words, if there's no nexus between what is being demanded by the government uh, and the purpose of the regulation, then uh, you're entitled to compensation. Here, you had a case in Nolan where in order to get a permit to uh, rebuild their, uh, their beach home, uh, the people, uh, the owners had to grant an easement so the public could walk over their property. Uh, this Scalia called a, um, the, the regulation uh, an out-and-out -out plan of extortion. Uh, and then in, uh, you had the, Dol the Dolan case uh, where Rehnquist uh, set forth a rough proportionality test. Uh, there have been a series of cases since then that I'm not going to go into. Uh, Del Monte uh, Dunes, uh, uh, Palazzolo, the Tahoe Sierra case, uh, the Lingle v. Chevron case, and so forth. I'm going to conclude with the Lucas case, which really ties in directly with the um, whole parcel as a whole a principle coming from Penn Central. David Lucas bought two parcels of land on the outer, outer banks of South Carolina with the idea of building a home on one and uh, building a home to sell on the other. Uh, he paid almost a million dollars for these two parcels. Uh, after he bought them, South Carolina passed the Beachfront Management Act, which rendered his property all but useless. Uh, he did what every red-blooded American would do. He sued. He lost below, and fortunately, the Supreme Court took it, and by five to four, they reversed. But in the reversals, Justice Scalia set forth his wipeout rule. If you are reduced of all uh, pro uh, value in your property, then you're entitled to compensation. Well, the problem there is that most regulatory takings don't wipe you out completely. Indeed, he still could use the property for picnicking and for pitching a tent. It's pretty expensive at a million dollars of picnicking uh, property. In any event, uh, Justice uh, 
Stevens said, look at, this is arbitrary. If you lose 95%, you're not entitled to compensation. Scalia said, well, takings law is full of these all or nothing situations. Well, thank you very much, Nino. And so th this, is, this is the state that we're left in. And so the question before us here is, is this, these two parcels that Todd talked about going to be taken uh, as separate parcels as they've always been considered or are you going to put them together? Because if you put them together, then you don't have a wipeout. And so now I'm going to turn it over to Michael Pappas to defend the dastardly state of Wisconsin in this case. And then Ilya will show him how he and the state are both wrong. <laughs> I want to send my thanks to Cato for having me today and uh, to Roger for that, that wonderful introduction uh, as, as the dastardly. Um, and I, I do want to state from the outset an appreciation for, for Cato and for this forum for talking about issues that are important in an intellectual way um, and in a way that helps us get to the bottom of the principles that we're looking at here. Uh, and I, I state that from the outset because one, I feel like I'm probably the least popular guy in the room right now. Um, and two, I, I do want to state from the beginning to, to Ms. Murr, I do appreciate the frustration that your family is experiencing. And uh, my defending this position in no way implies that I don't sympathize. So uh, let me make that clear. Now, that said, the state of the litigation to this point uh, has developed and Importantly for the case and importantly for the position of the county and for the state of Wisconsin, it has developed through state court proceedings that represent the final state word on the matter. So just a brief note on those because those, I believe, give us the necessary context for considering the parcel as a whole issue here. Uh, the MERS brought litigation challenging the uh, denial of a variance to develop the uh, lot E separately, or to sell lot E separately from lot F. That went up to the Court of Appeals in Wisconsin. Uh, it upheld the denial of the variance, and its reasoning for doing so was that under Wisconsin state law, lots F and lots E had merged into a single parcel. This was appealed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court denied to review it. Thus, that, that means the word of the Wisconsin Court of Appeals becomes the final word of the state on this matter. And I'm emphasizing that it is the final word of the state, because that's going to tie back into the theory of the parcel as a whole, and how does it fit into regulatory takings law. One uh, other proceeding below to consider the initial takings claim was premised on this idea that this merger constitutes a taking of the property. Right? That was litigated through the Wisconsin court system, went to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, uh, and the Court of Appeals said this was not a taking of the property because lots E and F, considered together as a merged parcel, still can be developed for a residential purpose, still can be sold as that parcel. So again, we have the final word of the state on that issue as well, premised on what I'll refer to as the 2011 Wisconsin decision. 
where they said that the law had merged the, the lots into a single parcel. Right? The challenge and what is before the, the court now is this question of, is this consideration of the parcel as a whole, including the two lots, is that uh, permissible construction in this case? One more note, because I, I failed to mention it earlier, this is all premised on a Wisconsin 1976 law, a zoning law, that said contiguous parcels under common ownership that are not large enough to be developed on their own under the zoning regulations will be considered a merged parcel under the law. So the timeline is the Mer parents, I'm using the terminology in the briefing, purchased the parcels in 1963 um, and then I think a year subsequent, I'm sorry, I can't recall that date. In 1976, the zoning changed, right? And then subsequent to that, in 1994 and 1995, relevant to this, the parcels were unified in common ownership to the Murr children. And the Murr children are disputing or are suggesting that that unification in common ownership that led to the merger under Wisconsin law, that that effectuated a taking of the property. So that's what gets us to where we are today. And the question is, how should the parcel as a whole be considered? Right? To Roger's point, when we measure whether regulation has gone, quote, too far and effectuated a taking, we need to say, what was the extent of the diminution? What was the extent of the interference with investment-backed expectations relevant to the parcel? So it makes a big difference how you consider the parcel. So now let's dip into the takings law to date about how do you consider the parcel. The briefing in this matter is actually, uh, there is no contest as to the question, how do you define the parcel? What does takings law look to for the definition of property? It looks to state law. It looks to the law of the states because the Constitution has no freestanding definition of property. The Constitution interprets property as defined by state law. In this case, the state of Wisconsin, for better or worse, wise or not wise, has defined the property interest as a merged parcel. Lots E and lots F were lots E and F were merged according to statute in 1976, and according to the final judicial decision of the Wisconsin court. Right, we have a dispositive word from the state of Wisconsin that lots E and F are one parcel; they've been merged. So then, the question for considering them as a parcel has been resolved under state law. State law has said this is one parcel. And that was the basis of the state court ruling that said we're gonna measure as against one parcel. You still own that one parcel. The state hasn't taken away any physical space of that parcel. The state has simply said there's no longer a division in roughly the middle of it. It constitutes one parcel that can be developed, that can be sold, but it's only one. That's what state law has said. The question before the court now, or a way of thinking about the question before the court now, is 
was somehow that an incorrect statement of Wisconsin law, or is Wisconsin somehow unable to make that determination in terms of law? Right? So no one seems to say this is an incorrect statement of Wisconsin law. The US Supreme Court has no expertise and no ability to say what Wisconsin law actually says. So we have to take Wisconsin law at the word of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. These parcels, or I'm sorry, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court declined to review it. These parcels right, are one parcel. These two lots are one parcel. So says the state of Wisconsin. So the follow-up question, is that somehow invalid? In the initial remarks, I believe Todd said, the question of the validity isn't at issue here. No one's saying Wisconsin doesn't have the power to do this. The question is, does Wisconsin owe some form of compensation for doing this? If you frame the question that way, I think we've already answered the key question of the litigation. How do you define the parcel as a whole? Wisconsin has done that. Wisconsin has defined the parcel as a whole. So now when we're talking about measuring the diminution in expectation, measuring how much less the value is, we have a state in its sovereign capacity saying, here is the relevant property, one parcel, considered under state law and under state uh, appellate court, the final determination. Right? So the follow-on question to that, does this constitute a taking? Well, we can get into factual issues. And that was presented to the Wisconsin court below. right? The Wisconsin court below said, we don't see a big diminution in the property interest here. You can still build a house. You can build a bigger house than you could before. You have more land, or I don't have more land, but that one parcel is just as great as the total holdings were before. Under that reasoning, the court dismissed the takings claim. Right? The court said there was not evidence. It dismissed it on summary judgment. It didn't find sufficient evidence to show a diminution of property. At this point, the way the posture of the case is phrased before the Supreme Court, it goes back to that parcel as a whole issue. And the posture of the state of Wisconsin and St. Croix County is that has been resolved in the only way that our constitutional structure will allow it to be resolved. States define property interests. We have Supreme Court precedent going back as long as the regulatory takings doctrine has exist that say the state defines the, defines the property interest at issue. So the posture of the state and the county is, we've done that. We have the final word of the state on what the property interest at issue is here. And consistent with our constitutional structure, this is a matter of state sovereignty. I'm in the Cato building, and I'm talking about state sovereignty. This should be playing well with you, right? It's a state issue. Now, states may make poor choices. States may make choices that we don't think are wise. But in terms of institutional capacity, the United States Supreme Court is not in the role of saying, Wisconsin, you are unable to define property. The court can say, if you define property in such a way that effectuates a taking, you have to pay for it. 
But again, that gets us to the underlying merits of the takings claim. That gets us to how great is the difference in value after the merger versus before the merger. That's not what's before the court right now. In fact, in the briefing, right, the uh, response brief for the MERS says, we shouldn't be talking about that. We shouldn't be talking about whether or not there was a real diminution in value. That's a factual dispute. And they say that should be taken care of on remand. But the issue before the court seems to be pretty clearly answered by state law. If state law is our measure of what is a property interest, we have the final word of the state in that regard. Right? Now, in the brief for the, uh, for the petitioners, for the MERS in this case, they suggest, well, we should have greater clarity in looking at what is the parcel as a whole. We should start with a presumption that a lot should be the parcel as a whole. The position of the state of Wisconsin and the county of St. Croix is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing in this, trying to, to bring them together, is essentially that, fine, start with a presumption, but what are you going to ground that presumption in? Ground it in state law, because that's the relevant sovereign in this case. The states are going to define property. And here, as a factual matter, you might look at states across the union, and most of them might start with the premise that, yeah, we'll look at a lot, but how do you depart from that starting premise? The suggestion of the state of Wisconsin and the county of St. Croix is, look at the duly enacted state law and see if it departs from that premise as looking at individual lots as the relevant parcel. And in this case, it does. Right? In this case, again, we have the final word of the state of Wisconsin as to what the relevant parcel is. I could go through, and I will, in the brief time left, say, Supreme Court precedent to date has identified a number of cases where we could look at identifiable, discrete boundaries we could draw around property rights for defining, quote, the parcel as a whole. And in every instance, the court has said, we're not going to look at what might be the obvious or identifiable boundary. Instead, we want an ad hoc factual inquiry. Right? Roger introduced that as a problem the ad hocery of this going forward. It's unpredictable. Yes, it is. But if you look at the project of the regulatory takings, as articulated in that Armstrong case that Roger quoted earlier, if the idea is fairness and justice to make sure that private individuals are not bearing the cost of public benefits, an ad hoc inquiry makes way more sense in that case because it allows equity and justice in the individual case. From the standpoint of the MERS, I can understand completely the frustration and how they are in a position where it does not appear that justice is done. But the process, that ad hoc process, has played out. And the state, as the relevant sovereign, has identified the parcel. There are many more things to talk about with this, the incentive structures that would be created if there were some kind of bright line rule. right? But none of the parties, neither of the parties is actually arguing for a bright line rule. In the end, the dispute between the parties here, according to the briefing, is how do we set a presumption? The state of Wisconsin, County of St. Croix, suggests the presumption should be grounded in our constitutional federalism principles 
where the states define the property right, define the parcel as a whole, right? The suggestion from the briefing for the petitioners is we should only look at a little bit of state law to define the parcel by what is the lot, and we should disregard the rest, right? That does not, to me, appear consistent with our Federalist structure, but I believe Ilya will disagree with me on that, or at least will represent the briefs that disagree with that. Thank you very much. I'll just know while Ilya gets up that uh, as we prepare for a Q&A afterwards, uh, those of you watching at home or those of you here are welcome to tweet your questions at me, hashtag Cato Events, uh, and I will find that. My Twitter uh, feed is at iShapiro. Thank you. I'd like to start by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this event and all of you for coming. Uh, I also have to start with two disclaimers. Uh, first, I just last night arrived from an academic conference in Hong Kong that I was speaking at, so if I'm even more incoherent than usual, it may be the jet lag that is speaking. Uh, second, I am the co-author of an amicus brief in this case on behalf of nine state governments led by the state of Nevada. It turns out that not all of the states believe that state sovereignty argues for a decision for the government here. Some of the states are actually standing up for property rights because, among other things, they believe their own interests are harmed here. However, I should also note, and this is a disclaimer, what I say today is just my own view. It doesn't necessarily represent the views of the nine state governments uh, that are on the brief. Uh, so as Todd said here, uh, the facts are that there were two separate parcels here, uh, and they came under common ownership. And eventually, the state of Wisconsin uh, attempted to redefine this as one single parcel so that they could avoid having to pay compensation. Uh, and uh, if you look at the parcel where development is forbidden, uh, that, that value of that parcel has declined by some 90% or more. Uh, so it's a situation where if that parcel was considered separately for taking analysis, it very likely would be declared a taking here because of the great extent of the diminution. So although there are some important technical issues here, and I'll talk about some of them, the bottom line here is this. Can the government avoid paying compensation for what would be a taking merely because the same person who owns the uh, parcel that's affected also happens to own the parcel next door? I think the answer to that question has to be no. Uh, otherwise, you undermine the text and the original meaning of the Fifth Amendment, and you also create some very perverse incentives for both state governments and for property owners. So I'd like to start out by talking about the actual text of the Fifth Amendment and the takings clause and how it applies here. Uh, the text simply says that the government must pay just compensation if private property is taken for a public use. Uh, it doesn't say anything about how that compensation can be avoided uh, if the property next door happens to be owned by the same person. Uh, and it also doesn't create a workaround 
where the state is somehow allowed to redefine the scope of the parcel or the like uh, after the fact so as to avoid uh, having to pay compensation. Uh, and indeed, historically, if you look at the certainly 18th and 19th century jurisprudence, even most modern jurisprudence, uh, what has been looked at in terms of uh, looking at takings is the parcels as originally created uh, when acquired by the owner and uh, with, with making their own decisions uh, and the like. Uh, I would note also that as a matter of original meaning and also as a matter of jurisprudence for much of the first 100 to 120 years of American history, it was not in fact the case the courts assumed that states can just create and recreate property interests as they see fit. Rather, as Roger suggested, there was actually a natural law view of property under which property originated not with the state but with the inherent rights of individuals. The state had some power to regulate and restrict that, certainly, but it was not simply the creator of these rights and didn't simply have the ability to do what as they saw fit. And this, these, this framework was actually applied uh, to regulatory takings questions, mostly by state courts in the 19th century, such that by 1868, when the 14th Amendment was enacted and first applied the Bill of Rights, including the Fifth Amendment to state governments, by that time there was actually a pretty well-developed regulatory takings jurisprudence in state courts, which relied at least in large part uh, on these natural law principles. Uh, and certainly, uh, there is also a historic principle underlying some of this that uh, is generally considered in property law that every law is unique and has its unique uh, characteristics, uh, and therefore, monkeying around with the lots after the fact in order to avoid takings liability uh, that uh, seems to go against uh, these sorts of principles. Uh, and if you look at even modern Supreme Court precedent, it also assumes, uh, generally speaking, that the fact that you own the lot next door uh, is not relevant to your takings claim. Roger mentioned the Penn Central case of 1978, which, although I'm not a big fan of the framework set up there, it is still the leading modern regulatory takings case. In that case, the unit of analysis that was looked at was the ownership of the Grand Central Station, uh, and that was the parcel that the court focused on, even though the same owner also owned the Commodore Hotel and the Pan American Building, which as uh, most New Yorkers know is, is actually right next door, but uh, the court did not say, well, we're going to have to include that in the analysis uh, as well. Uh, and similarly, uh, if you look at the Tahoe Sierra case in 2002, uh, the, uh, the court uh, emphasized that an interest in real property for takings purposes is defined by the meets and bounds that describe its geographic dimensions and the term of years that describes the temporal aspects of the owner's interest. Obviously, meets and bounds is just a fancy way of saying parcel, uh, that, uh, legally speaking. Uh, and uh, if state law attempts to redefine the parcel for the purpose of imposing additional restrictions that might amount to a regulatory taking, uh, that is just a, uh, an attempt to get around the owner's property rights, an attempt to avoid having to pay compensation, and it's an obvious circumvention uh, of basic principles uh, of takings law. Now, obviously, underlying this is the idea 
made up by the Supreme Court, doesn't have a basis in the text or original meaning, that when you decide whether there's a taking or not, you look at the parcel as a whole, uh, and the more of the parcel's value is destroyed, the more likely it is that there will be a taking. Uh, I think the parcel as a whole rule itself is extremely dubious, as many commentators, both right and left, have pointed out. Uh, it's something that was uh, a rule that was sort of made up and created by the Supreme Court. It doesn't have roots in a text and original meaning. Uh, in my view, not necessarily the state's view, but in my view, uh, the courts eventually get rid of the parcel as a whole rule and simply consider what property right have you lost. Uh, the, t the takings clause focuses on what has been taken, not on what the property owner may happen to retain. But if we are going to retain the property as a whole rule, and it's unlikely that it will be fundamentally changed in this case, then at least we shouldn't make the situation worse uh, by allowing the state to uh, arbitrarily expand the size of the parcel by including uh, contiguous lots. Uh, so in addition to the uh, purely legal and historical question I just outlined, there are also some important practical implications of this case. In particular, there will be some very bad perverse incentives created uh, if this case goes the wrong way. One is perverse incentives for property owners. Uh, if the property owners know that if they acquire contiguous parcels, the state can after the fact say, well, it's all one parcel, and therefore you get no compensation if we impose severe restrictions on one but not on the other one, then obviously they will have an incentive to avoid acquiring those contiguous parcels, uh, and that creates obvious inefficiencies. There are many cases where it's useful to have uh, common ownership of contiguous parcels. Alternatively, uh, they could try to create dummy ownership. They could say, well, this part, this lot next door, it's not really owned by me. It's owned by the other Ilya. He's going to be my straw man business partner for this particular uh, transaction, uh, and that too has obvious inefficiencies uh, when you, uh, in effect, bring in additional parties into a transaction who are only there to avoid uh, legal problems. Uh, this state of affairs also would inhibit the assembly of land for large building projects or even for small or medium-sized ones, uh, so that also uh, is harmful for development. It also, of course, creates perverse incentives for state governments and regulators. Uh, they will have incentives to do what Wisconsin uh, attempted to do, to do in this instance, which is essentially to try to redefine parcels so as to avoid takings liability. Uh, and uh, it creates problems where uh, regulators will uh, have uh, will be able to use this to uh, adopt regulations which uh, undermine owners' property interests, lower the value of the property, and cause harm. And because the regulators don't have to pay compensation, uh, they won't take account of the full social costs of the actions that they're taking. This is actually one of the reasons for the interests of the state governments that I represent. Uh, they want to incentivize their state and local regulators to do a better job uh, of considering the full costs and benefits of their actions. Uh, and the takings clause and its rigorous enforcement actually helps them to do that. There's a decent amount of empirical and social science research on this question. Uh, finally, uh, it's worth noting an even more direct interest uh, of states here, uh, which is that state governments often own contiguous lots and large uh, bodies often near uh, areas owned by the federal government, particularly in the western states.
States. Uh, obviously, the rules of regulatory takings here apply not just to takings under, done by state and local governments, but also those done by the federal government. And the Supreme Court has also said that these principles apply to the taking of state government or local government-owned property by the federal government, as well as to the taking of private property, uh, if you can essentially say the contiguous lots uh, are merged uh, in this way, then the federal government would have an ability to exploit state government-owned property, and in many cases, states own large amounts of relative contiguous property, and the federal government can essentially say we're going to regulate and impose severe restrictions on the use of some of it, but we don't have to pay compensation because you own all this other property nearby. This is another potential negative consequence that my clients, the state governments, are concerned about. If you're interested in this and the other points that I've made, many of them are in our brief, which is available online at various websites. Uh, so I think the bottom line is this. Uh, however you come down on the question of whether there's a taking in this case or not, the answer should not depend on the fact that the owners of the one lot that is affected by the regulation also happen to own the other lot next door. That's the one single mantra that I hope people will take away from this case. What we should look at is what was taken away with respect to the lot that was actually affected, not whether the owners happened to acquire another lot, and not whether the state or the local government decided after the fact that they want to redefine the scope of the lot so that they can avoid having to pay compensation. Uh, I think I'll stop there, and I very much look forward to questions and discussion. Thank you. All right, before we open for questions, first I want to uh, see if, uh, Mike, if you have any uh, response to what Ilya just said. I would love to. Um, would, just I, stay there. I can yeah. stay where I am. Um, ju just two brief points in, in response. I think there's a lot of, of things that we can talk about here, um, but I want to pick up on Ilya's core point at the end, he said, if you don't remember, I'm going to mess up what you just said, <laughs> right? But, but the core point, if you don't remember anything else, remember that we don't want just because it's a neighboring lot for it to be merged. That, that's effectively the point. I want to push on who is we and who gets to decide that point. Because questioning the wisdom of that is questioning the wisdom of the state enactment. The state of Wisconsin has made a choice that in certain circumstances, we do want contiguous ownership of neighboring lots, common ownership, to mean that the parcels merge. Whether or not you think that is a good idea, Ilya doesn't think it's a good idea. I don't always think it's a good idea. The question is one of does the state have the authority to do that? And assuming the answer to that is yes, does that in itself effectuate a taking? Right, so I think bringing some order to that question helps in the resolution of the case, and I think it actually betrays, if the ultimate problem with this is we don't think the state of Wisconsin made a good decision here, that's something where our check on that is politics in the state of Wisconsin, right? There's electoral accountability for making these kind of decisions, but if it's the wisdom of a state enactment 
that's not what the takings clause does, and that's certainly not what the parcel as a whole inquiry is supposed to get at. I'll stop there so that we can uh, go. Roger, you had some comments. Uh, yes, I want to thank Michael for coming into the belly of the beast, um, but that charitable act does not render him immune from the slings, <laughs> from the slings and arrows of sweet reason. I would hope not. <clears throat> Uh, he has very cleverly tried to recast this issue as one of federalism, hoping to hoist us on our petard here at the Cato Institute. We will not uh, be so hoisted because this is indeed a question of federalism, but federalism does not allow states to do anything they want. In particular, it does not allow them to redefine property in ways that violate constitutional principles, which is exactly what is at issue in this case. Here, let's take a look at it. Wisconsin changed its law in 1976. Prior to that, the MERS had two separate lots which had always been treated as separate. They were bought separately. There were separate deeds. Uh, they paid taxes separately right up to the present day. And so it's only this statute that has changed them and collapsed them into one law. At time two, they, T1, they had two parcels. At time T2, they had one parcel. Uh, and they were told you cannot sell that parcel without selling the other as well. You cannot build on it. In other words, you, uh, couldn't, you weren't even grandfathered in as other similar lots in the neighborhood were that were of smaller size like this lot. And so what we've got here is a question which it was put to us by Michael as follows. Wisconsin has the power to do this. Yes, it does. But it must pay for the changes that they have affected on the MERS and other people. In other words, the property rights movement today can be reduced to a simple statement. Stop stealing our property, pay for it. <laughs> Indeed, the answer that you get in return is, well, listen, if we paid for every regulatory taking that we engage in, we couldn't afford it. I can't think of a thief who would think, say anything different than that. <laughs> Why are you taking my money? Well, because I can't afford to do other, and so forth. Takings law has to be changed fundamentally from the f Lucas principles. Scalia got this case exactly upside down. Go back to the metaphor of the bundle of sticks. You own every stick in that bundle. He said you get compensation only when the government takes the last stick. No, you get compensation from the time they take the first stick. If a mugger approached you and you had $100 in your pocket and he said, your money or your life, and you said, leave me with $20 so I can get a cab home, okay, I think we'd all agree that that mugger had taken the money even though he didn't take all of the money. But if that mugger has a badge that says state of Wisconsin, then he can get away with it. That's not right. That's not what the takings clause is about. This has to be changed. To put a, I, I'm going to let uh, Michael respond to that. But to there is no response. To that. <laughs> I, you, you, want to, you want to double down on it? You want to I'll, quadruple down I'll, on it? I'm going to make a different point that was made. Yeah, I'm happy for Ilya to go, okay. and then, then all right. I'll go. All right. 
so I want to speak to the federalism question because I'm one of the relatively few people who write about both property and federalism. And so uh, and on, on my federalism scholarship, I often write in favor of greater decentralization. So people often say, how is it that in most areas you say there should be greater decentralization, but in property you want the evil federal courts to impose things on the poor states uh, and beat them up? Uh, and I think my answer is twofold. One is that the whole point of applying the Bill of Rights and other constitutional rights to state governments is in fact to question the wisdom of solidarity decisions and to limit their power. So the kind of federalism argument that was made here could be used to devalue virtually any application of uh, constitutional rights against state governments. You can always say, well, the sovereignty of the state gives it uh, the power to do things here. Secondly, uh, what I'm arguing for here is actually even greater decentralization, not less, but greater, because if the state is limited in its power to seize property without compensation, and otherwise has to respect property rights, then in more cases than otherwise, uh, the decision about what is done with the property will be up to the property owners rather than to state or local government. And that means even more localization of control rather than less, which is good from the standpoint of people who believe that local knowledge and autonomy is important uh, and that we want to decentralize control over uh, property as well as uh, other things. Finally, uh, I think decentralizing control to state or local governments often is useful in situations where uh, if the state or locality screws things up, people can vote with their feet and move somewhere else where there are better policies. But this system breaks down somewhat uh, when you're focusing on assets like land, which are immobile. Uh, you can leave, but you can't take it with you. Uh, and so there, there's a special need for federal constitutional rights to protect people against exploitation of these immobile assets. If, for instance, I have a whole article that I wrote several years ago called Federalism and Constitutional Property Rights, which uh, is available for free on my website and elsewhere. You can uh, Google it. Uh, so I think ultimately true principles of decentralization actually come down in favor of stronger property rights here. Uh, and the state's autonomy here as elsewhere is actually limited by the Bill of Rights in that they can't monkey around with property rights in ways that uh, would enable them to avoid the compensation that they would otherwise have to pay under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. Ideally, we should deal with this problem by simply getting rid of the parcel as a whole principle, which doesn't actually make any good logical sense and is not in the text and original meaning of the Constitution. If we're not going to get rid of it, we should at least not make it worse by allowing states to exploit it by essentially saying that contiguous lots are one lot and thereby they can avoid compensation. To, to sharpen the point and kind of combine uh, what, what Roger and Elio have said, I got a question across the, the Twitter, again, hashtag Cato Events, that I think uh, puts a, a finer point on this. This is uh, Joel Nolette, who's a law student at Georgetown, uh, and asks, what is the limiting principle on the idea that states can avoid takings uh, or having to pay for takings by simply redefining parcels mm -hmm. or property interests? Great. So... Um a lot of excellent questions there. I'd like to start, um, I think that final question, I don't want to start with it, but, but that is the core question. But I want to start with Roger's earlier metaphor. Say the mugger comes up to you, I'm going to call the person a mugger, and says, give me those two $10 bills. Here's a 20. You used to have two, now you have one. 
right? Is that an apt metaphor here? Well, it doesn't matter at all as long as the value's the same, right? So your retort might be, but the value's not the same. Well, if it's two tens and a 20, the value is the same, but you might say, but this isn't two tens and a 20. This is you're taking from me two tens and you're giving me back maybe one 10 or you're giving me back a 15. That's a factual question. That factual question went to the court in Wisconsin and the court apparently didn't see a big difference in value, right? And we could put another metaphor, right? I'm gonna take two $10 American from you and give you $20 Canadian. I don't actually know how much that's worth. I don't know if that's more or less. It's less, thank you, right? I don't know if it's a lot less, but that's the factual question again. Has this change in form? Because here we have a change in form. There used to be two lots as defined geographically. Now that same geographic area is within one lot. So it depends on if the value changes. But again, that goes back to the merits. That's a fact question. That has nothing to do with the merger of the two. So the court of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Appeals Court was asked, is this two tens for a 20? Or is this something that really diminishes the value? And the court apparently thought it looked more like two tens for a 20 than it did like something else. Now, what is, let me get to Ilya's subsequent question and, and the question, I, I think the, the really, uh, that which cuts to the core of it, the sharper point, um, is, is there a limit on the state's ability to, uh, I'll use Ilya's terminology, monkey around with property? Absolutely, there must be, right? And that has to tap into what are the reasonable expectations. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that states may not ipse dixit, just change the definition of property, right? So how do we set the permissible limit on when property can be changed? One suggestion is if this change impacts the value of property substantially, then that becomes impermissible or at least compensable. That becomes the mugging, the theft that Roger was talking about. That directs us right back to the merits of the takings claim. Has the value changed, right? That's not the question at issue in this case. The petitioners specifically say, that's not what we're litigating here. We're litigating, does the merger, is that a valid merger? Or does that merger itself effectuate a taking, right? Uh, that is not a question that can be answered just by the merger. That's a question where you have to get down to time one, what was the value of the property? So at time one, what was the value of lots E and F combined? At time two, when they're merged, what is the value now? Again, that question was put to the Wisconsin court and the Wisconsin court didn't find a great diminution in value. So that's one limiting principle. We could think of others uh, but I'd suggest that's the one that's most closely tied to our current regulatory takings doctrine, which we've heard arguments that we should rip that up and do something different. I'm happy to have that conversation. That doesn't seem to be the way this case is presented, but I think it's a very interesting conversation to have. Roger. Let me take the, the two points in order that Michael has just raised. First of all, with respect to whether there was a diminution of value in the combined lot as opposed to the separate lots. Our brief says that the lot uh, E, that was the undeveloped lot, 
was worth $410,000, if I'm not mistaken. That is what, if it were put on the market, and perhaps you did attempt to put it on the market, you didn't. Well, I don't know where we got the 410, but it came from somewhere, $410,000. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. Or at least that's a correct statement of the appraisal, which... Yeah, okay. Okay, if, you had, if they'd have been able to sell it separately, it would have been worth $410,000. So now have we, we have a measure uh, of what this lot was worth had that statute never been passed. Now, the second point that, um, uh, the, that Michael made is that um, the issue... Uh, is, he says, has the value changed? No, that turns it upside down. The fundamental issue is, has there been a taking? You don't determine whether there's a taking by looking at whether the value has changed. You look at whether there is a taking on its own terms. Has this regulation prohibited you from doing with your property what you otherwise might have been able to do, save for this statute. For example, sell that property. If indeed it prohibits you from doing what you otherwise could have done, then you look to see whether the taking that has just taken place has reduced the value. So it's the taking first, the valuation second. You don't determine whether there's a taking simply on valuation. If that were the case, then, as I said, when the military base closed down, then presumably you would have a takings claim against the government for shutting the military base. All right. My case. Let's, uh, let's open it up uh, for questions. Please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone and announce your name or affiliation. Before I call on someone, I can't resist because of this talk of the 10s and 20s and making change and whatnot. It reminds me of a Soviet-era political anecdote about Petya and Vanya, two uh, counterfeiters. Uh, and, and Petya starts churning out 15-ruble notes. Uh, and Vanya says, you idiot, that's not real money. We can't use this. This is useless. So he says, okay, I'll go to the bank. So he gets, comes, goes to the bank, comes back with seven and eight ruble notes. So there you go. <laughs> Soviet banks did not put out either 15 or seven or eight ruble notes. All right, back there. Wait for the mic, please. And, and if you'd please identify yourself in any affiliation you have. I'm Jerry Stock. I'm a lawyer at Greenberg Trog, but I also wrote an amicus brief in this case for a collection of um, real estate industry and trade associations, including uh, the National Association of Home Builders. I, th I have a question, but I first want to say I think the, uh, the 10 and 20 uh, analogy or metaphor is clever, but, but really not quite right because uh, there is a difference. I mean, money is fungible, so in our mind we think it's, there's no difference. There is a difference. If I want to buy a $10 cigar, okay, and all I have is a $20 bill, I'm stuck. I've got to give the 20 to get the cigar. What the MERS had before this statute was they could sell the $10. They could pay the $10 and still keep $10. So that's my answer to your metaphor. My question is this. I'm surprised. Well, first of all, thank you all for uh, an excellent discussion and uh, the Cato Institute for organizing this, and I mean that sincerely. I'm surprised that um, there hasn't been more pushback from my friends on the right to this idea that uh, Wisconsin state law merged the lots. 
That's not what the statute said, and that's not what the uh, Court of Appeals said. Effectively merged. What the statute does is it says they can't sell it. They can't sell Lot E. They can't develop Lot E. Um, and the merger, it, it's a land use regulation. The two lots still exist. I don't actually know the answer to the following question, but I'd pose it and then wait for it. This is the question. There are still two lots in the land records. Uh, as I understand it, the, um, the ordinance or the statute says, the law says that the MERS cannot sell Lottie or develop it. What would happen if they got a Wisconsin lawyer to draw up a deed for Lot E and conveyed it for consideration to someone? I mean, is that, what's the, is there a penalty for that? I mean, they can physically sell it separately or legally sell it separately. And so there are two lots in the land records. All the statute does is it regulates the use of that land. And one of the regulations, one of the parts of the regulations is you can't sell it and you can't develop it. And the legal result is you got to pay for it. Right. I, I assume that was to me. And so uh, I think that that is right. So, so that's a good question. And I'm going to dodge it for a second and talk about the fungibility uh, issue real quick. And, and that is the whole conceit of regulatory takings is that land and property becomes fungible, right? It does not honor subjective values, much to the frustration of property owners, much to my frustration if, if someone exercised eminent domain over my house. I understand the concern with that. It just simply has not been the state of the law to date. And so to talk about sort of subjective value and non-fungibility, I understand the point. It just doesn't reflect the doctrine. Um, the question on Wisconsin law, I think, is an excellent one. I think is unfortunately directed to someone who is has very little knowledge of Wisconsin law. I, I really don't know what the Wisconsin court would do with that. So what do we have to go on? We have the statement of the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, and we have them relying on the Wisconsin Supreme Court in that Zealy case, right? That was apparently sufficient to convince the Wisconsin Court of Appeals of the correctness of the decision and to convince the Wisconsin Supreme Court that it didn't need to take it up on review. Now, whether the court would enjoin a subsequent sale, whether it would unwind it, whether it would suggest there's a cloud on the title, um, unfortunately, I don't know the answer. It's a very good question, but this is an area where if that were posed to the U.S. Supreme Court, all the Supreme Court could do would be guess as to what the Wisconsin law would be on that. The Supreme Court would have more resources than I currently do, and they're smarter than I currently am, but they would have to make the same guess that I am suggesting has to be made. And so that, I believe, is an argument that this comes down to Wisconsin law. This is a Wisconsin law decision. I'm happy to, uh, well, I don't have control, but yeah. do you all have other thoughts on that? So just a, a couple of brief thoughts. One is uh, on the question of compensation and subjective value. It's important to separate out subjective value in the sense of I just have an idiosyncratic valuation of land, which indeed is not compensated, uh, versus there can be objective differences uh, which are compensated between two different framings. The question, so even with the $10 bills versus the $20 bills, it could be the case that there is an objective advantage to having in the form of two $10 bills, as you helpfully pointed out. Uh, and that is even more likely in the case of land where uh, things are not as fungible as they are with uh, uh, bills of money. As to the state of the Wisconsin state law, my understanding of this is that 
their argument here is that this is essentially merged for some purposes, but not others. So it may not be merged for recordation purposes and ownership records and the like, but it is merged in terms of these regulations that govern the use of the land. Uh, and to my mind, however you want to look at this, it can't be the case that the takings clause permits the government to, in effect, redefine the nature of the lot in such a way as to actually limit your usage rights in a way that would be compensated if they hadn't redefined it, uh, but now would not be compensated because they've expanded the size of the parcel as a whole. I do think the ultimate solution to this, I said before, is to get rid of the parcel as a whole principle, which is a pernicious principle that has no basis in the text or the original meaning of the Constitution. But if we're not going to get rid of it, and I grant we're not going to get rid of it, we should at least not make it worse and not make it more expansive. We should at least require the state and local governments to stick to the original framing uh, of the uh, lots in these cases, at least insofar as when they redefine them, if they do so in such a way that triggers regulations that uh, restrict usage rights and then also enable them to turn around and use the parcel as a whole principle as a way to uh, uh, deny compensation. So uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to uh, this point that the state should not be able to redefine things or regulate things in such a way that uh, you are denied compensation in a case where you otherwise would have gotten it merely because you happen to own the lot next door. Uh, there's many technical legalistic ways that the states could try to use to uh, try to make things such that they don't have to pay compensation in such cases. All of those ways, no matter how legalistically clever, violate the Constitution. I'm Jim Burling, Pacific Legal Foundation. And what our client wants to do, just so everybody's clear about the equities here, our clients have a cabin on the other lot. That cabin needs repairs. They don't have the money to repair that property unless they can sell the other lot. You're telling us that they have the same thing, the same value, because they have the two lots next to each other, but they can't do anything with the second lot. They can't monetize that second lot if they can't sell it. So the Murr parents, back when they bought the lots in 1960 and 1963, had every opportunity to sell the investment lot to raise the money and use the money that way. Now the Murr family, the children do not. Palazzolo said that if the state wants to redefine property rights, the future generations, and that's a quote, still have the same right to challenge that as a regulatory taking. But the premise of the Wisconsin argument here is that the future generation no longer has the same rights as a prior regulation because of an intervening statute. So how does that conform to the meaning and intent and logic behind Palazzolo? I, um, so, it conforms, I believe, in this way. Palazzolo said the same right to challenge, right? Future generations have the same right to challenge. Your takings claim doesn't expire merely because there was a regulation prior to your taking the interest, right? The, this case is evidence of that at play. The regulation was in place before the Murr children received title to the property in fact, one could say it was unfortunately an ill-advised transfer that put 
the two parcels into this merger situation, right? That it could have been avoided. But what Palazzolo said was you don't lose your right to bring a takings claim. Palazzolo did not say you always win your takings claim. So I know that's cold comfort, but the right remains. And the nature of the takings claim, no matter how uh, we might want to fight against that in this room, is that it's measured by diminution of value. That's the measurement in Penn Central, right? There's the interference with investment-backed expectation, the diminution in value. Those both have a lot to do with what's the economic loss, right? Lucas is very explicitly about diminution in value, and the Loretto Doctrine is our outlier, which doesn't look at the diminution in, in, in value. But the doctrine, by and large, has to do with diminution in value, and that diminution in value is measured, again, not in terms of the subjective, and I know Ilya made an important uh, uh, you know, tweak to that. It's not in terms of the subjective value, but it's in, term to, in terms of objectively identifiable values. It is unfortunate that the Murr family cannot accomplish what they wish to do. I'll be the first one to say it. I don't think anyone here would dispute that, but, the ruling of the court was essentially you can't subdivide this property now. You cannot treat these parcels as separate. You can't sell one and use that to fund your renovation of the other. Instead, what you have is one larger parcel. You can sell that. You can retain that. The question of whether that results in a taking is at time one, what was the total value? And at time two, what was the total value? And you can bring that claim. Palazzolo says you can bring the claim. You are not categorically barred from bringing the claim. That's what Palazzolo was over. Was the property owner categorically barred from bringing a claim because he had purchased that property with knowledge of the prior restriction, right? So this seems very consistent with Palazzolo. Because of Palazzolo, this claim exists, and I'll just circle back to what I said earlier, it doesn't mean the claim has to win. That comes down to the valuation question, at least under all of our current applicable takings tests. If I could respond to that, Jim, I think you've raised exactly the right point. Michael keeps going back to the diminution of the value as the definition of the taking. I give you this example. You have a restaurant or a motel the community decides, or the state decides, to build a new road five miles outside, and therefore the traffic no longer goes down the old road. You're virtually wiped out completely as a result. Do you have a takings claim? No, because it took nothing that belonged. You can still run your restaurant. You just won't get many customers, if any. So that is not a taking. The taking comes from taking something that belongs free and clear to you. The Murs had two lots. They were deeded as two lots. They paid insurance on two lots. They paid separate tax bills on two lots. The government changed that. And as a result, as Jim said, they no longer had the ability to sell the uh, vacant lot and get the proceeds that would be necessary to rebuild the ancestral home. That's wrong. It's un-American. Can, can I briefly just, uh, to, to put a clarifying point, because I, Roger's right. I have oversimplified this value question. 
but Roger is also oversimplifying it. And so let me try to, to bring it. The takings clause, if we're going to take the Armstrong case at its word, right, that this is to make sure that in fairness and justice, public uh, benefits are not created via these private concentrated burdens. There are really two questions at issue. One is the burden. What is that privately concentrated burden? That's the question about value. The other is a political process question. We don't want to see individuals having costs foisted upon them for the public benefit as a result of abusive political process, whether through majoritarian tyranny or through some kind of special interest faction. So it's the combination. The value question isn't just the government is general insurer of value. It's the government, or the Constitution, I should say, the Fifth Amendment, stands in the way of political process abuses that would result in the expropriation of value. So you need both. You need that process abuse, and you need the expropriation of value. In this case, maybe there's a claim that this is a process problem. Maybe this is unfair. Maybe this is a bad decision, right? You also have to ask, did it expropriate value? And that seems to be the holding of the, uh, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, that it did not expropriate I didn't say that the valuation was irrelevant. I said it was second. The first question is whether there's a taking. The second question is what is the loss, if there is a taking. You've got to get the order right. Do it's a the- simple matter of logic. But of course, I did philosophy as an undergraduate. You and did English. I, I did. I did English, <laughs> the language we are all currently transacting in. Um, and as an English major, uh, reading comprehension was a major facet of that. <laughs> and so, I'm not suggesting this is what the test should be. I'm saying this is the doctrine we have from the Supreme Court, where the test is premised. The question of is there a taking is premised on reduction in value. So. As much as philosophically no, no, Roger's no. point might be correct, it is under Penn Central. It is under Penn Central. Let's discuss this, this further just, at lunch. Uh, let's have a question right here, second row here. Mark Moiser, senior contributor for the Liberty Conservative. Just to follow up the analogy that we've been using about money, I, I like the cigar analogy, and what's more like it is you got two $10 cigars, and the government's giving you a $20 cigar. Now you don't have a cigar to give to your friend. <laughs> and I think that's we'll, – we'll keep moving this analogy as the day goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely apt. I, I think you're absolutely correct um, with that analogy. I'm, you may still have a question. I just yes. wanted to know. I may have a follow-up depending upon the answer because the first question is I'm trying to understand when did the lots actually really merge? Did it merge before it transferred to the kids or did it officially merge in 74 when, when the law passed? I can answer that straightforwardly. It occurred in 1976, okay. but it was not ripened until they sought to do what they sought to sell the the other parcel. I mean, they had a claim from 1976 on. So my my question, I wanted to understand that so I could ask my question. I actually want to dispute that because they don't merge until they come into common ownership. Uh, The record has a dispute about that. 
The Murr parents had common ownership in 82, but apparently all the briefing has proceeded on the assumption that they merged in 94, 95, because it's the common ownership that merges, not the existence of the statute. There wasn't common ownership prior to arguably 82, but definitely 95. So I'm, I'm sorry, you still have a question. So th that seems to be the dispute, which may or may not answer my question. Why uh, doesn't the argument of retroactivity make this not applicable to this uh, partial, you know, because legislatures are not allowed to retroactively change something. And you had two deeds, and now it seems to be reaching back in time versus what was from then on forward. And so that would be, I would understand it if it happened when it's transferred to the children, but if it happened to the parents, why doesn't retroactivity apply? And, and the whole, this question of retroactivity, I want to I want to kind of recast in the parlance of the takings doctrine, which is takings is about interference with investment-backed expectations, right? That's the retroactivity. We have investment-backed expectations, and suddenly we have a new regulation that presents some interference with that, right? And so when we talk about retroactivity, you could say, well, is it invalid because it's retroactive? Well, there, there isn't doctrine that says this is invalid as a result of that. So then the question is, well, is it a taking? Is this this theft that Roger was talking about? Does the retroactivity constitute a theft? We're going to keep coming back to this, and I don't think I'm going to convince Roger today, but maybe, <laughs> maybe tomorrow, um, that... Dream on. <laughs> the, <laughs> that this question of, is it retroactivity that interferes with investment-backed expectations to the point that it's compensable is going to be a question about reduction in value. So I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record coming back to this. It's not that I'm making it up as I go along. I'll just keep pointing to that's what Penn Central says, that's what Lucas says. They both look at what is the value now in T2 versus the value then in T1. Yeah. You talked about diminution based upon uh, expected, uh, what is it, investment-backed backed expectations. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> I would just note that it's even if you follow this investment-backed expectation test, which is uh, one of the three prongs in Penn Central, it's still investment-backed expectations in what? Uh, and if you are able to essentially expand the size of the relevant what uh, retroactively, uh, then you can avoid takings claims that way. And that's precisely the kind of strategic manipulation that, among other things, federal court enforcement of property rights under the Constitution is supposed to uh, prevent. Uh, so that uh, even if, if you want to use that three-pronged Penn Central test, which talks about the character of government action, the investment-backed expectations, uh, and so forth, uh, then it still must apply to the original uh, parcels that originally existed. The government can't, in effect, load the dice in its favor on this test uh, by expanding the size of the parcel merely because there happen to be two separate parcels that are uh, under common ownership next door to each other. And that's what's ultimately going on here, even though uh, the fact that it's going on can sometimes be obscured by a buildup of various complex legalisms that have been applied here. When okay, I hear investment-backed expectations, I say pshaw, which, <laughs> which an English major 
would understand from reading Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. We can continue discussion uh, over lunch, which will be upstairs on the second floor. There are restrooms along the way on the first floor and on the second floor. Uh, and with that, uh, we are adjourned. Let's give a big hand to the panelists. <laughs>